0: Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org, indypenden dot O R G. We've got another fantastic show in store for you this evening, and I'm joined by our co host, Amber Gagarian.
1: Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org.
0: Thanks, Amber. On today's show, we're going to look at the growing backlash to Eric Adams' appointment of several brazen homophobes to his administration.
1: Also, on the first day of Women's History Month, we're going to speak with Linda Alcoff. She's a leading critical race theorist who will talk with us about why the left should stop running from the controversy around critical race theory and see it as an opportunity.
0: And in our final segment, we'll hear from Christina Zavarucha, About her experiences coming of age in New York's Ukrainian American diaspora and how it has shaped her life. But first, we're going to look at the growing outrage in the LGBT community here in New York about Eric Adams' decision to appoint three individuals to his administration with a long history of homophobia.
1: The appointees are former city council member Fernando Cabrera, who once championed the government of Uganda, which was calling for the death penalty to be applied to gays, and Eric Salgado, a longtime ally of the Anti-Gay National Organization for Women. On Thursday, LGBTQIA advocates rallied outside City Hall to denounce Adams' choices. This is Kathy Marino-Thomas and then Cecilia Gentili speaking at the rally.
2: Fernando Cabrera not only spoke out in support of Uganda's persecution of our community, he went out of his way to visit the country. He too apologized via Facebook, hours before his appointment. As a marriage advocate for years, pardon me if I need a little more concrete proof of evolution. You know, as a a trans woman, uh, I am very uh, used to uh, uh, experience uh, uh, transphobia, uh, terrible comments, usual harassment, uh, walking in the streets, in the train, uh, in uh, every place in the city. And I can tell you that transphobia and homophobia are uh, consistently happening in the city at all times. It was a couple of months ago, that two gay men were attacked in Bushwick. They were attacked with, with 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 glass bottles, right? They could have died, right? They were attacked while they were like yell at homophobic slurs, right? And as a, a trans woman, I was punched in, in in the face in the train a couple of years ago on the L train, right? And nobody did nothing about it. So if we think that we are so far removed from homophobia and transphobia in the city. We are totally wrong. You know, we are totally wrong. And this mayor, by this appointment and sending a message that that is okay. And guess what? That is not the New York that I moved from another country to, to get to live my life.
0: Joining us now to talk more about this is Amelia DeCauden. She is a trans-socialist organizer and Democratic Party district leader in Assembly District 37 in Sunnyside, Queens, who first became politically active in the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. Amelia, welcome to WBAI Radio.
3: Hi there, John. Thank you for having me.
0: Sure. Uh, So for starters, you were at uh, last Thursday's rally outside City Hall Uh, Can you talk about the range of groups there and how how it made you feel when it was over?
3: Yes, no, it was a really diverse group of uh, equality-based organizations, LGBTQ advocacy organizations, uh, LGBTQ elected officials, allied elected officials, and more. Uh, It was really heartening to see that coalition because uh, not only does... Uh, appointments like this affects, you know, queer people, you know, for the basis of being queer, but there's also a lot of intersection um, for how like the nature of these biases affect people who are, you know, not just queer, but also, you know, immigrants, you know, black, uh, brown, Asian, Um, you know, it affects people who are sex workers. And so having that intersectionality represented in this, in this protest, I think really drives that point home and how important Uh, resisting these appointments is.
1: Right, Emilianne, can you tell us more about these individuals and their past examples of homophobic behavior, please?
3: Right, so I think like the really salient example here is Fernando Cabrera. He is a evangelical uh, preacher. He's a former city council member. And he has not only, you know, traded in homophobic as well as, you know, anti-abortion rhetoric, uh, you know, in the past, you know, and during his tenure as council member and at the pulpit. But he has even gone so far as to go to Uganda and rally there in support of uh, the bill that was being proposed at the time there that would have allowed the government to execute uh, people who are getting, you know, people who were accused of being gay. And so, you know, not only do we just see, you know, a personal, you know, difference in beliefs or like, oh, uh, I don't like what you're doing, but you have the right to do it. We see someone who is uh, materially invested in seeing, um, you know, gay people and queer people, um, you know, marginalized, criminalized, and although he, you know, walked it back and claimed that he didn't understand what was going on, uh, he's in Uganda killed.
0: Right. And, and um, can you talk about uh, what office he was appointed to and, and also who his uh, uh, boss will be, uh, uh, Pastor Guilford uh, Monroe, another vocal opponent of gay marriage?
3: Sure. So Cabrera was appointed to the um, Mayor's Office of Faith-Based Initiatives and uh, you know Public Partnerships. Um, I might have the name look a little off, but the essence there is the same. Um, and that office, you know, is, is how the mayor, uh, you know, forms relationships with, uh, you know, not only, you know, faith communities across the city and, you know, in particular it's important to know, not just Christians, but all faith communities, um, as well as, uh, you know, relating to, um, you know, community organizations, you know, of all stripes that, you know, have nothing to do with faith and, having someone in that role um, while, you know, the mayor might think that, you know, having a former councilman and the former preacher, you know, might make sense uh, in that con- in the context of the faith-based role. Uh, this role, you know, has a lot more far-reaching implications in terms of how the mayor's office is going to interact with, you know, many marginalized communities, you know, not to mention, you know, people of faith who are also queer. Um, and in that position, you have the ability to, um, you know, ha- like have a materially negative impact on those people's lives by, you know, pushing his biases and letting them, you know, affect his decision making. Um, his boss, uh, you know, Monroe, in, in that, uh, in that group of three, I'm less familiar with. I do know that he also has a history of uh, homophobic and, and anti-choice comments, um, and I think that, uh, if anything, it goes to show that the mayor you know, not only, you know, made a, you know, one particular oversight with, you know, Cabrera, but that he, uh, you know, simply does not care about appointing any number of people with these views. Um, and, you know, has even gone so far as to say that uh, it's his prerogative as mayor to make these decisions, uh, even though he claimed to, you know, support the LGBTQ community in, in, you know his you know, tenure as you know state senator, borough, president, and so forth.
1: Right, and, and just talk quickly about Eric Salgado being appointed to the office of immigrant affairs, but then speak on why you think he may have made these appointments. Um, it's not like there aren't many other capable people mm-hmm. that he capable people that he could have found to fill these positions. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Please. Right. So
3: Salgado is also a really frustrating in choice. Um, in particular, because the mayor's office of immigration affairs is touching a community that, you know, is, is already so heavily marginalized in, in, you know, the United States and, and to a lesser extent, New York city, but still. And the most, like the intersection of the most marginalized within that, is the queer the queer immigrant community. You have people who are facing not only discrimination, you know, within uh, you know their families and their communities, but simultaneously, you know, facing uh, you know repression from the state and the risk of deportation. Um, so, if you have someone who is seeking assistance because their family kicked them out of their house and they no longer have uh, a place to maintain a job that was you know keeping their you know, their visa active and they're at risk of deportation. Um, an office that is led by someone with these views um, could make the difference between that person, you know, surviving uh, in their home in New York City or getting sent back to a place that they left for a reason. Um, you know, Salgado, uh, you know, has a long term relationship with Eric Adams. Um, you know, I, I did some research before this and I saw that he, there's a picture on his Twitter right now is from 2018 him with eric adams and so i think that him uh monroe and cabrera you know have these long-lasting relationships with the mayor i think that's why they were chosen i don't think that adams was going out of his way to um you know pick the worst people for these jobs or like incite controversy um but he certainly is apathetic to the consequences of people of picking people that he might have relationships with, or that he owes favors to, uh, you know, against the, you know, real negative impact that they're going to have on the queer community, because in all of these positions, it's not just that these people are going to, you know, spread their views or otherwise, you know, contribute to some sort of negative atmosphere, or, you know, bad vibes or whatever you want to call it. They're going to be in decision decision-making positions where, they'll be able to, you know, directly affect the, you know, lives and material, you know, prosperity of heavily marginalized groups of New Yorkers.
0: Right. And we want to uh, look a, a little beyond New York as well. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, public officials who are in a position to harm vulnerable communities last mm-hmm. week, Texas governor, Greg Abbott, Republican announced an investigation into gender affirming health care for trans transgender youth as, quote, child abuse. Abbott's directive to state agency says parents of trans children receiving the often life-saving care should be investigated that, and that anyone, including doctors, nurses, and teachers who fail to report the treatment to authorities could face criminal liability. Uh, how, how has this uh, latest attack on the uh, trans community, how is it uh, affecting you all, and and and, and what are you hearing from Texas?
3: It's really distressing, is how I'll put it. Um, we're seeing, you know, Republican governors all across the country, and now in this case in Texas, not only passing laws to criminalize trans people, but specifically going after trans children, um, as well as using existing laws meant to, you know, combat you know real instances of child abuse and child endangerment. Um, and turn, turning them against trans kids, we know that you know trans kids are you know especially vulnerable in general in this country because of the barriers that are um, you know placed on um, you know getting transition care. You know, not to mention the fact that uh, not only do you have to you know access that care, but your family has to be willing to access it for you, um, and then to see this uh, you know not just. Like additional barrier, you know, come down from the state of Texas, but also this, you know, proactive, you know, criminalization of uh, them and their families. Um, it's I don't know. It's it's just really it's unfathomable the level of harm this is going to to cause to these to these kids and to their families. Um, we're seeing, I think, at least one lawsuit that was filed this morning by the ACLU on behalf of a family that was being investigated by the, you know, Texas, you know, uh, Department of Child Services. Um, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that that lawsuit is going to at least hopefully put a stay on this, on this, you know, order from the governor, but there's no reason to think that the law or the constitution are going to, you know, perfectly protect our community in this instance. It's the only way, you know, around this is You know, building an organized resistance to the kinds of people that, uh, you know, see, you know, the trans community as red meat for their base that they're willing to sacrifice for.
1: And, and, you know, you say that things like this can cause trans children to kill themselves. And last month, South Dakota's Republican Governor Kristi Noem signed a similar law to the one we just described in Texas for South Dakota. And there's a statistic running around right now that 90% of South Dakota's queer community is diagnosed with either anxiety or depression. Just your response to that uh, um, and then a little bit of elaboration on the experience of gender dysphoria and, and how that's so overwhelming.
3: Absolutely, so I, I think lot, uh,
1: so take your time.
3: No worries. I think uh you know for for your viewers who you know might not you know know the specifics of gender dysphoria, uh you know you find yourself feeling like a stranger inside of your own body, like if you're a teenager, you might not necessarily you know not everyone has the same experience. I certainly didn't really understand what was going on or I didn't frame it in the sense of. I have a man's body, but I want to be a woman or I am a woman or, you know, my, this puberty is betraying me or so forth, but I knew that something was wrong and it caused, caused me distress. Um, and for trans kids who have supported families and an environment that allow them to, you know, come to the understanding that they're not, they're not just, you know, there isn't just something vaguely wrong with them, but that they're trans and that there is a path to, you know, getting the bodies that would make them feel comfortable to know that and then see your body change because the state is forcing you to undergo the wrong puberty, the people I know who've undergone that because they didn't have supportive families themselves, you know, in the past you know, decade or so, it's extremely distressing um, because a lot of these changes aren't reversible. Um, they require, you know, surgery or, you know, hair removal or so forth that is, you know, painful and difficult and expensive and does not get the same kind of results that simply avoiding the wrong puberty would. And so kids who are, you know, being prevented from, from, you know, access and care, it's not just postponing something or, you know, taking away an amount of time they could have to live as their authentic gender. It's causing, you know, irreversible, permanent harm to their bodies and subsequently their psyche. And it's not a coincidence that uh, trans people who, you know, face gender dysphoria, either because they didn't realize they were trans until adulthood or were forced to undergo puberty, have a much higher rate of, like you said, anxiety, depression, and both of those things internally to a higher incidence of, you know, suicidal ideation and, you know, suicide attempts. So statistically, you know, I'm not sure how, we'll, when we'll, if we'll see, you know, instances reported, this isn't the kind of thing that, comes on the news or that I would want to come on the news, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, over the next year or two years or so forth, if this loss, or if this order stays in place, that we'll, you know, find out that the incidence of suicide amongst trans kids in Texas, you know, has risen. It's like, okay. it, you know, has or will in South Dakota.
0: Right. And, uh, we have to go shortly, but in our last 30 seconds, uh, I was just curious, I mean, obviously there's a tremendous repression the transgender community is facing. Yeah. So, um why, why do you also choose to organize uh, as a socialist, given, again, all the challenges and I, mean, I those people face? The re-
3: absolutely. The reason I organize as a socialist first and not just as a trans right activist is because all of these struggles are intertwined in, you know, the material basis of where these forces that, you know, empower Republicans who are antagonistic to us or empower Democrats who are apathetic to us. You know, we we need to target that foundation. And that foundation is, you know, capitalism. It's what causes these politicians to respond to those interests rather than to the interests of the people that they're representing or that the the people that they are part of as opposed to separate and above from. Um, And so the only way that we're going to be able to dismantle these systems of oppression is to, you know, attack it at the base rather than just you know address the symptoms and yeah. in the case of you know queer organizing the symptoms are so bad that they need to be addressed and they don't want to build that work at all there are a lot of people who aren't socialists who are doing who are doing very important work but the only way that we're going to have to you do know, really long-term lasting and permanent uh solutions to the suppression is you know getting rid of capitalism but it's okay
0: uh, we'll have to leave it there uh But uh, uh, Amelia uh, Ducodden, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio.
3: Thank you for having me.